the Bible is the most fascinating book in the world. Its characters are not dead. They are not restricted to any time or place. They represent you and me. According to the New Testament in Romans 15 and verse 4, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and understanding, might have hope. Take, for example, the stories about Israel. They tell of our pilgrimage from sorrow to salvation, from bondage to freedom, from death to life. All the stories of that pilgrimage, as we find them in the early books of the Bible, are little pictures of our continuing experience in the way of salvation. Egypt, Canaan, the Red Sea, Elam, Mara, all these have their parallels, their counterparts in our experience. In the story, there's sadness aplenty because all of us are plagued by sin and guilt. We're born rebels against God, and that's the chief cause of our sorrows. This morning I want to look at one example with you, the example that's found in the last verses of Numbers, the 16th chapter. Here's a story of rebellion and death, of intercession, love and life. Let me read it to you first from Numbers, the 16th chapter. And I'll read from verse 41. But on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. It came to pass, when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, put fire therein from off the altar, put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation. Make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700, beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. What a tragic story, and yet what a wonderful story. The tragedy was that the people forgot so quickly. If we were to read the early verses of the chapter, we'd read about the rebellion of Korah and the 250 princes of the congregation that rebelled against Moses and Aaron and claimed that they had the right to lead the people and that Moses and Aaron were taking too much upon themselves. And God had acted with swift judgment. The earth had opened her mouth and swallowed up the rebels. But now we read that on the morrow, the very next day, these people who'd been newly terrified by the earth consuming the rebels. These people who'd been newly saved, they had not been swallowed up, but now they rebel and complain. They grumble once more. On the morrow, it says, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. My friends, we may think it strange that the Israelites should so constantly rebel. But may I ask you, are you and I content 
with the providences of God? Do we never grumble at our lot? Are we never found coveting something other than that which God has promised or offered or given to us? Have we never been saved from danger and death and yet the next day or the next week forgetting the deliverance find ourselves prosecuting our own selfish, hateful ways? Has this not often been true of you and me? And so see in the Israelites ourselves. See how slow to learn is human nature. How forgetful it is. It tells us in the 42nd verse that the glory of the Lord appeared. My friends, the New Testament tells us that God is not far from any one of us. That in him we live and move and have our being. You remember that Daniel spoke to the king of Babylon and reminded him about the God in whose hand His breath and life was. That's our God, my friends. And he's always present whether we see him or not. God at times seems so quiet and so still. He may seem to be in the shadows, but my friends, all the time he's on the throne, watching, observing, judging, punishing, forgiving, blessing. We ought never to forget that he's there. Israel forgot. And there was their tragedy. This whole story of rebellion and wrath and a play going forth is the story of mankind. We have rebelled against our maker and the plague has gone forth. We are dying people. The wrath of God, my friends, is manifest in the death of mankind. For death is the penalty of sin and all of sin. But praise God, in this story, there is an intercessor. There is a redeemer. There is one who makes a propitiation and averts the wrath of God. There is a saviour here, a deliverer. I want to fix your attention upon him. If the story only had our image, how tragic that would be. But this story has the image of Jesus. Look about Aaron, the record concerning him. Aaron took the censer as Moses commanded, ran in the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun among the people, and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. My friends, this man Aaron was the one the people hated. He was one they had rebelled against. He was one they wanted to get rid of. Though they hated him, he loved them. Aaron represents our great high priest the one with wounds in his hands and feet and in his side, the one whose head was crowned with a crown of thorns, the one who was nailed to a cross, who has now ascended up on high to plead for us, for us sinners. Aaron represents Jesus, the true high priest. And you'll notice it says about him that he was so willing. He ran into the midst of the congregation He was a congregation being consumed with plague. He's not fearful of the crazy multitudes. He's not fearful of the pestilence. He's a willing saviour. He runs. Remember, he's now 120 years old. Imagine that. Some of us have difficulty running when we're 20 years old. He runs into the midst of the congregation. He's a willing saviour. Remember, he's the aggrieved party. What a wonderful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Has not our sin dishonoured him? Was he not the eternal God? Did not sin conspire against him as well as against the eternal Father and the Holy Spirit? But our Christ laid aside all thoughts of avenging himself and he became the saviour of his people. And that's what Aaron's doing right here. He's a willing, loving saviour. Notice he's the only saviour. Moses didn't take the censer. Moses didn't offer the incense because Moses, my friend, stands for the law. Moses is the great lawgiver. And the law is perfect for perfect people. But you and I are not perfect. The law does not give us a way of salvation. It does give us a standard of righteousness. Every Christian set at liberty from sin runs in the way of God's commandments. That's his pattern of life. We do not mean in perfection because there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We must all pray, our Father, forgive us our trespasses. It's written in the book of James in chapter 3 and verse 2, in many things we all offend. But a Christian hates sin and shies from it. But nevertheless, my friends, we place no stock in our law-keeping because it's never good enough. That law demands perfect motives, perfect thoughts, perfect desires, perfect words, perfect deeds. That law demands that we choose the best in every situation. For there is an element of sin, my friends, in the choice of a lesser good in any area whatsoever. Moses couldn't help the people. The law cannot save us. Law never runs anything. Law has no power. What you and I need is power. We know what is right. But how to do it? There's the rub. There's the problem. Once Carlyle, the great British historian, said to his mother in semi-anger, if I was a preacher, I'd go into the pulpit and I'd say, you people know what you ought to do. Go and do it. His elderly mother, a wise old Christian lady, said, aye, Thomas, she said, but would you tell them how? And that's our problem. We know we should be loving. We know we should be kind. We know we should be patient and sympathetic. Even when we're weary, we should be patient and sympathetic and kind. But how often we fail. We know there are things we should do for other people. But how often our days are engrossed with selfish tasks. We know we should love God with all our hearts and mind and soul and strength. That he should be first and best and last in everything. But in all things we should be seeking his glory, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. All should be done to the glory of God. Thus says the law. And thus aims the Christian. But my friends, the law cannot save the best of us, let alone the worst of us. And that's why Moses isn't represented here as having the incense. Adam and Eve could have been saved by the law because they had perfect natures. You and I don't have perfect natures. We were ruined by the fall. We are more prone to evil than we are to good. It's easier for us to do evil, like rolling downhill. A mother once asked a little boy, Tommy, why are you so slow in doing what's right? And Tommy said, Mother, it's such hard work and it makes me tired. And that's the way it is for all of us. Dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live fish to fight against the current. Kites rise against the wind. 
And so, my friends, I want to fix your attention again on Aaron. He was the one that had to do with the blood, with the incense. He was the one that went into the presence of God. He was the one that bore the jewels on his shoulders and on his heart with the names of the people upon them. Because Christ bears us upon his heart and upon his shoulders into the presence of God, sheltering us with the incense of his own righteousness. So law is not a saviour. It knows not how to show mercy. But Jesus is our saviour and Aaron here reminds us of him. Think of the eagerness of Aaron as he runs to help the people. Does it not remind you of the eagerness of Jesus? He said, I have a baptism to be baptised with. And how am I straightened until it be accomplished? And on another occasion he said, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Jesus longed to finish the work of redemption. And at last on the cross he said, it is finished. With great eagerness he accomplished the path, the work of our salvation. And so Aaron here is a willing saviour, a loving saviour. He's an only saviour. He's an, he's an unaided saviour. Aaron was the one who did all things on the day of atonement. That was the great day that typified the cross and, and our Lord's entrance into the presence of God. On the day of atonement, the priest had to slay about 14 or 15 different sacrifices. He had to be awake all night beforehand, just as our Lord Jesus was awake all night before his offering on the cross. That high priest went into the presence of God in the sanctuary alone. Of the people, there were none with him. And our Saviour hung on the cross. Alone, the Saviour. He was there for us. I want you to notice too that Aaron was a sufficient Saviour. That is, he was a successful Saviour. It says he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. The plague was moving among the people as a fire moves along a field of corn. The faces of men were growing pale as on and on it came. They fell in great heaps, thousands of them. And then came Aaron, running into their midst between the living and the dead. And where he waved his censer, the plague was rebuked and fled and men lived. He was a sufficient saviour. He was a successful saviour. The incense. Who would have thought of that as a cure for a plague? According to Ephesians 5 and verse 2, it's our duty to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Saviour. That's what Ephesians 5, 2 says. You notice that last part? He gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Incense was sweet-smelling. It represented the sweetness of the merits of Christ. His positive obedience to all the commandments of God. His fulfilment of the law in these positive requirements and in the penal requirements because he died as a penalty for our sins. No wonder the scripture says, walk in love as Christ has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. In Exodus 30, it tells us about this incense. And I will not read you the verses, but you can read them at the end of the chapter. And the Israelites were forbidden to try and make any incense like that for their own use, because there's no righteousness like the righteousness of Christ. 
Let none deceive you with talk of perfection. Jesus is the only real man, apart from Adam, that's ever lived. He was a perfect man. You and I are not perfect in this life. We await glorification at his coming for that. And yet we should ever be striving toward perfection in order to glorify him. See in that incense his perfect righteousness, which alone can rebuke the plague of the wrath of God. See our intercessor with crown of thorns and pierced hands before the Father, with all the emblems, so to speak, in the memory of God of what had happened to our sacrifice. All that comes before the mind of the Almighty as Christ sits there in glory for us. I'm so glad the record gives a successful finish to the story. Our Lord did not die for naught, my friends. He died for you and me. Would you notice that in the story, Aaron is pictured as a divider of the people. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. There's a verse in the New Testament that's rather similar to that. Let me turn to Second Corinthians in the second chapter. Paul, when he speaks about the ministry of the gospel, says this. We are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of life unto life. To the other, we are the savour of death unto death. And who is sufficient for these things? And so Paul says that the preaching of the gospel is like the waving of that incense and that divides between the living and the dead. Wherever our Lord went, he divided the people. They had to make a decision. The book of Acts, which tells of the record of the preaching of the gospel of Christ, is full of riots and revivals. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, it causes one or the other. There's always a division. My friends, we cannot be confronted with such love, with such mercy, and not be forced to take our stand either with Christ or against him. Think of the picture once more, with Aaron putting himself in the pathway of the plague, with that plague coming on, cutting down all before it. There stands the interposer, the intercessor, with his arms outstretched and the censer swinging toward heaven, the one man interposing himself between the darts of death and the people. That's the way it was with Christ. Wrath had gone out against us. The law was about to smite us. The whole human race must be destroyed. But Christ stands in the forefront of the battle. The stripes must fall on me, he cries. The arrows shall find a target in my breast. On me, Jehovah, let thy vengeance fall. I'm quoting from the words of Spurgeon as he spoke upon this text very beautifully. He receives that vengeance and afterwards, upspringing from the grave, he waves a censer full of the merit of his blood and he bids this wrath and fury stand back. There was nothing but love that moved Aaron to wave his censer. The people could not demand it of him. Had they not brought a false accusation against him? Yet he saves them. It must have been love and nothing but love. Say, was there anything in the voices of that infuriated multitude that could have moved Aaron to stay the plague from before them? Nothing. Nothing in their character. Nothing in their looks. Nothing in their treatment of God's high priest. Yet he graciously stands in the breach and he saves them from the devouring judgment of God. If Christ has saved us, he's a gracious saviour indeed. And my friends, as we contemplate that gracious saviour, it divides us because we must either take our stand with him or against him. 
Look at Aaron again. On one side of him is death, on the other side is life. The boundary between life and death was that one man. Where his incense smoked, the air was purified. Where it did not smoke, the plague reigned with unmitigated fury. There are two sorts of people listening to me this morning, today. The living and the dead, the pardoned and the unpardoned, the saved and the lost. My friend, a man in Christ is a Christian. A woman in Christ is a Christian. But a man or woman outside of Christ is dead in trespasses and sins. He that believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ is saved. He that believeth not is lost. Where do you stand today, my friend? Christ has always been the divider. In John 10 and verse 19, the Jews complained. There's a division among the people because of him, they said. In John 12, 30 and 31, our Lord foretells his uplifting on the cross and said that that would be the judgment of the world. His cross was like a judgment throne, dividing between the lost and the saved. The thief on the left represents those that are careless in the sight of the great sacrifice. But the thief on the right who prayed, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. He represents those that appreciate the Saviour, that respond to him. They cannot earn their salvation, but they can accept his salvation. In Matthew 25, we're told that when the king shall come in his glory, then all men shall be gathered before him and divide into the sheep and the goats. Everything then, my friends, will depend on how we have responded now to so great salvation, to such wonderful love. We ought not to be like Esau, who counted his inheritance a mere nothing. He preferred a mess of pottage. And if in this life we neglect the Christ and what he's done for us, if we think not about death and preparation for the life to come, and this time is but a pebble on the beach compared with the great ocean of eternity, if we're like Esau, forgetful of the future, forgetful of spiritual privileges, then, my friends, one day there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for us, by us. We should not be like Judas, that have walked with Christ and yet not fully given him our heart. We should be like Jacob. Jacob called himself, knew himself to be, a supplanter, a cheat. But God gave him a new name, Israel, which means a prince with God. When we see ourselves as we are, my friends, then God's blessing descends richly. He changes us and transforms us. Let us be like Peter. On one occasion, Christ called him Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. But he became a mighty rock, part of the rock foundation of the Christian church, built upon Christ, a giant cornerstone. It may be we've been like Paul, mad and murderous, but if we meet Jesus, my friend, things should become altogether different. Do we have anything to boast about once we've been saved from the plague? Nothing. Only our Saviour can we boast about. We could never deliver ourselves. How then should we live? Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verse 49. If we've seen ourselves and those delivered from the pestilence by the mercy of God, let us note how we should respond. The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died. 
He died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, from here on we know no man after the flesh. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Do note that we are to behave as those that have died and risen again, that henceforth we have a new relationship with every man and woman. We see them not as they are, full of defects and deficiencies. That'll be the constant temptation. But see them as the purchase of Christ's blood. See them as he sees them, in terms of what they can be if they respond to his mercy. And then we're to act as new creatures for whom all old things have passed away and all things have become new, new habits, new ambitions, new objectives, new purposes. And note too that we have the ministry of reconciliation. What's that? Notice the next verses. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, is committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ, said, be ye reconciled to God. There's our message, my friends. There's our task. To go to the world and tell the world that God made Christ to be sin for us in you no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, to tell the world that God is pleading, beseeching, for all to accept his gift. God's reconciled to us and to every sinner. Shall we not tell sinners to accept the reconciliation and live? My friends, this morning as you think of the great divider, will you ask yourself the question where you stand? On the right or the left? On the side where there's death or on the side where there is life? Where the air is purified or where the plague reigns? Are you among the pardoned or the unpardoned? The saved or the lost? He says to you today, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto me. And he that cometh from the island no wise cast out. God bless you, my friends, as you come today, even today. Amen. Amen.